Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do <laughs> if you had nothing better to That's do. That's right. And um, today I'm in a different remote location. I'm in beautiful Dover Foxcroft, Maine, Ooh. which is near the fake town in the book I'm writing. I'm on a writing vacation. Sounds good. It is good. <laughs> I'm not no vacation. Well, that's what happens. Sorry. I have no response. <laughs> I have no response to that, obviously. I'm sitting here in my beautiful bedroom with my kitty cats. Yes. And also, I have to have the windows open because it, it would be very hot in here, and I don't want to run the air conditioning while we're doing this. So it's on a quiet street. So hopefully there won't be a lot of noise and, out there. Well, I am not on a quiet street, and so we might hear some traffic noise. Yeah. But You're in the whatever. other Portland, not the one where the federal government is taking over and it's oh a police state, but the Portland where that's no not shit. happening. shit. I don't know what you're doing. I can't wait. No, I know you don't. I know you don't. But first of all, I have an update. But before my update, I want to talk about an incident that happened today. An incident. Yes. Oh my god, that sounds serious. It's not, but it could have been. Oh, sh- but, okay. What? But well, I can make it. Well, it it almost was because okay. not to be like overly dramatic, and maybe part of it is from doing this. I mean, you know, we do these things like Louis Chaput, and you think of other incidents. So I was walking over to a cemetery because mm. across the river because one of the um ways I get names for my books is I go through cemeteries of and it's also a good ID theft um that's ghoulish <laughs> I'm joking well I'm that's just... how some people do ID theft they get a baby I know name. but anyway and there was this park that had been built where there had been an old mill that had been torn down and I assumed it was just like there's a parking lot and I could just go down to the river because I wanted to see the view of this other mill blah 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 so there's no cars in the parking lot or anything it's this beautiful day it's in the 70s I go through that parking lot I go down and when I'm getting down towards where the river is there's a car parked with its engine running and the windows down in this weird place, almost behind these bushes facing mm. me. And I'm like, that's a weird place for the car to be. We're the only ones here. And of course I'm like, not only am I like 60 pounds overweight, but I'm wearing flip flops and shit. You know, I'm not somebody who's gonna. So I start walking through the park and I think, okay, I'll just go up this way and up the road and it'll go back to the road. I didn't want to go back by that car. And I get, and it was this huge, huge park it ended up being. And I get to the other end and I'm not near the road. And there's between the park and the road, there's these woods and they're like main woods. They're not pristine woods. They're, they're like all tangled up with shit and probably poison ivy and all this crap. And I'm, yeah. and I'm wearing flip-flops. And I'm like, okay, I'll wait and see where a car goes by and I'll see where the road is close, but no car's going by. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go back the way I came. And I texted you so that you would know. <laughs> I know. In case, in case, like, I was murdered or something. Like, I even tried to send a po- photo of the car. I was thinking of, like, down the hill or something. I tried to send a photo. Mm-hmm. So I start going back the way I came in this, like, this old tote road that goes through these woods to this field. And I see a guy just standing there. Ah! And I texted you about it. Oh, my God, the guy's standing. So I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to go back and go through the woods. So I was a little nervous and i went back and i and i like ran through the woods <laughs> oh i wish i could see probably that. funny to see and i actually came out at the cemetery that i was heading for in the first place so all 
swell than ends well. And then when I was walking home along the road, there's another car in the parking lot with another middle-aged guy oh, sitting there with Jesus. the window down. Yeah, and I and so I figure I wanted to say to him, hey, the guy you're looking for is down. Mm-hmm. You know, cause I know, I, that's the first thing I think I of. Get, is just, right, because yeah. I figure even Cruising. though it's okay to be gay these days, there still are. And I, and I even texted you that as in another little park, in a different part of Maine, like last year, I stopped because there was this waterfall and stuff that was on the Androscoggin River. And I go, and there's like two different cars at either ends of the parking lot with guys just like that. They're yeah. always these middle-aged, kind of overweightish-looking guys mm-hmm. smoking cigarettes. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to fucking leave. But, it, like, you can't aff- enjoy a pretty park because you have middle-aged guys who are either looking for another guy. I want to say cornhole, except for now that's a game that everybody plays instead of what it used to be back in the 80s. Or you're afraid they're going to, like, murder you, like Louise Chappelle I know. Well, when I lived in the West End in Portland, Maine, in the 90s, there was a problem with cruising. A really bad... I mean, there were people complaining because they were walking... There was a, you know, walking trail, and they kept coming upon people (laughs) having sex. Men. Men. Men having sex. Because it's not women who are doing... It's never been women who are doing this. No, unless they're sex workers, and that's the only place they can go. Right, But they're just trying to make a living. Right, but the whole the whole cruising culture where you're yes. just looking to pick up someone out in, out at a rest stop or something is almost for not for money, but ju- for- just to get your rocks off. It's always been men, and I know. think that a lot of it's closeted. Right, and know. I think they like it. Like I said to you earlier today, I think they like doing that. Even oh, though I you can so. be open now, I think they they but, just like um, yeah. There used to be signs all. <laughs> All over that said no cruising, and they had this like fifties looking guy <laughs> on it. I, I wonder if I can find one online. Oh, that'd Anyways, be funny. but anyway, so I just thought I'd share that. Well, I'm glad you weren't murdered. You also described a lot of serial killers or white, right? You know, well, I was habit. thinking of like Molly Bish, who we've never done as an episode, but you know she was the lifeguard in Massachusetts. So oh, she was yeah. like 15, Aww. and her mom when she dropped her off saw a middle aged guy standing there by his car smoking Ugh. a cigarette. I'm sure she regrets Aww. to this day. But anyway, okay. But you can never be too cautious. I think texting somebody when you're in a situation like that, just so there's some indication of where you were and what happened. Just like that poor guy that, uh, what's his name from the Patriots killed? He texted his sister. Oh, yeah, yeah. Aaron Hernandez killed. Yeah, Yeah. I'm with NFL. Yeah. Yeah, his name was Odin Lloyd, lest we forget. Oh, yeah, okay. But on that note, too, on on that note, too, we're also the podcast that doesn't twist ourselves into pretzels to not say the names of the murderers. Yeah. Because they're a valid part of the story. I'm listening to Real Crime Profile where they're talking about that podcast about guru, you know, James. I always want to say James Earl Ray, but it's um, James something else Ray. You know, the people died in the alleged sweat lodge. But they're they're twisting (laughs) themselves into pretzels not to say his name. Oh, why? Because they don't want to give him attention? Uh, Yeah, because they don't give the they don't say the names but to me as a journalist especially i on our podcast the name of the people who commit the murders is part of the story oh and the if other you don't th- like that you can listen to somebody else but the other thing that you didn't mention is when when i texted you i said the gift of fear you did even though I haven't read the book. Yes, and I was channeling The Gift of Fear, which everybody should read. I'm going to read it. Thank you. Okay. Sometime. Before I start my story, I have an yes. update. I have an update. Okay. 
I don't have um, any updates. Well, we're going to do a, in a couple weeks, probably a midsummer catch up on our updates episode yes, anyway. exactly. So okay. We can catch up okay. on all of them. Because I know you had like the Samford hit and run lady that Oh, ran. Jesus. I have a whole bunch of them. Yeah, okay. I gotta look them okay. up. Okay. Anyway, um, so what's going on with Jelaine Maxwell, you may be wondering. Jelaine I Maxwell. I wish her well. I just want to say, <laughs> yeah. I wish her well. Yeah, that comes up. That comes up. Okay. Okay. Jelaine Maxwell, she of the three passports and $20 million and 15 banks, was denied bail July 14th by federal judge Allison Nathan, and she's going to stand trial next year, July 21st, 2021. She wanted to serve her detention until the trial in a luxury Manhattan hotel. Fuck her. I know, who the fuck wouldn't? I'd like to serve my detention in a luxury Manhattan hotel. fuck herself. No shit. Her siblings were willing to post her $5 million bail, as I'm sure my siblings would. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> if, I, if I were in prison for trafficking children for sex, which I wouldn't be just, by the way. Maxwell, who's in the Federal Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York, was also given paper clothes as an anti-suicide measure. Hmm. One big revelation is that she's married, although it's not clear to her, and she won't say. That came out during her bail hearing on July 14th, which I know was a while ago, but we're just catching up with this. The prosecutor, in arguing she shouldn't get bail, said, quote, The defendant also makes no mention whatsoever about the financial circumstances or assets of her spouse, whose mm-hmm. identity she declined to provide to pretrial services, unquote. So apparently some poor sap was lured in, maybe I had 20 million bucks, it also came out that she pretended to be a journalist named Jen Marshall in order to buy the oh. New Hampshire house where she was arrested. Although I don't know why she had to do that since she was bought it through an LLC anyway. And also, like a journalist is going to be able to afford a $1.7 fucking million house. <laughs> you know, what kind of journalist is that? Well, I guess some would, like if you're on like MSNBC or something, but like yeah. normal journalists don't. Did I mention in our report a couple weeks ago that she apparently wrapped her cell phone in tinfoil to avoid <laughs> No. No, because she did. <laughs> what a dumbass. That's not how they find your phone, you stupid shit. Oh, and she also, um, when they came to the door, ran and hid in a bathroom. But then she came out. When President Trump, a notorious friend of Jeff, Epstein that is, was asked about her at a news conference a couple days ago, he said he wished her well. He said that like three times. Quote, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Yes, he knows they lived in Palm Beach (laughs) because that's when he was hanging out with Jeff. And a recent Vanity Fair article points out that a New York Times story reported last year that Trump and Epstein hosted a party at Mar-a-Lago in 1992 with a guest list comprising the two of them and 28 girls. Gross. The Florida businessman George Horaney told the Times that he organized the event and told Trump, Look, Donald, I know Jeff really well. I can't have him going after younger girls. And Horaney said Trump dismissed the warning. Vanity Fair says it wasn't the only such interaction between the two men who'd overlapped in social and business circles for years. Last year, MSNBC's Morning Joe, and this is from a recent Vanity Fair article, aired newly found footage of Trump and Epstein laughing together while watching dozens of NFL cheerleaders dance at a Mar-a-Lago party in 1992. 
Quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with, Trump told New York Magazine in 2002, which we've all seen that quote a million times. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are on the younger side. No doubt about it. Jeffrey enjoys his social life. Gross. And as we also know, Trump has said um, that he and Jeff had a falling out. Too bad. And that's Gee, my... how convenient. I know it's kind of disjointed, but that is my... Jelaine Maxwell update. <laughs> Somebody tweeted um, recently who her husband might be, but I can't remember. There's a lot of speculation, anyone. but I didn't have time. No. To... I mean, who knows? It'll come out sooner or later, I'm right. sure, if she's married. Well, Ugh. she she is married, but she's. they're just not saying who it's to. Ugh. It's so gross. There's that clip people are always showing of Trump and he's like dancing. I, I kind know. of. <laughs> uh, he's so... Uh, it's just gross. 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 Sorry. It's gross. Don't apologize. Why? What would there be to apologize? Okay, the case I'm about to discuss, um, I discovered while I was researching it, has been the topic of a couple true crime podcasts and blogs in recent years. And I didn't listen to the podcast or read the blogs and have tried to make my narrative as original as possible. As we frequently... That's a change. (laughs) (laughs) No, just like if people hear it and think, oh, they're copying so-and-so. Yeah, we never copy. They copy us. But I was going to say, as we frequently mention on this show... Information gets picked up and cut and pasted into news stories over the years, even stuff that doesn't make sense. I tried to unravel those things, and hopefully, even if you're familiar with this case, I'll have some stuff you didn't know. I hope to, because I did extensive research for mine. This is not a cut and paste. I can't wait. Well, here it comes. You don't have to wait any longer. This took place in 1992, and most of my information is from Boston Globes over the years, beginning with when the murder happened. And that's thanks to newspapers.com. I had to get the premium edition to access that there were like 372 things with this person's name in them, and they were all at the premium level. But thank you to some recent Patreon support, Monica, and some of our longtime faithful supporters, particularly Karen and Mary, have upped their support. And and we can talk later after this, too, Becky, about the new logo you're working on. Oh, yes. I'm excited about it. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're updating our swag with that. And, um, yes. We'll and hopefully we'll have that soon, yes. But in yes. any case, I digress. As you okay. know, as you know, there's nothing like the original newspaper information as things happen rather than the game of telephone cut and paste that happened over the years. I got some very nice details also from a court document that can be found on a few sites, but I like Justia, U.S. Law, which reproduces court documents. You yes, don't have that's to, one I use a lot. Right, yeah. you don't have to sign in or anything. And usually if you, like, Google the, just the person's name in, like, court, the word court, any docs will come up. And this one was great. And there's also an Unsolved Mysteries from 1996 that provided some entertainment value, um, but no new info and even had some bizarre stuff in it. And I forgot, you know, because I did the new... Unsolved Mysteries as my NNW last uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, and I forgot just how cheesy the reenactments yes, very cheesy. are. But and I'll cite my sources as they come up. If it's stuff that's not common knowledge, there's a lot of common knowledge in this. And this case has many of the elements that greatly intrigue me. Apparent law enforcement ball dropping and a driven parent who will not let anyone forget their child's murder. 
It also has, I'll say it right now, a simple and obvious motive. Male privilege. And I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, but I think you'll still enjoy this. There are some red herrings, and they may be part of it, but that's what it comes down to. While no one has been charged, and the pleas for info keep on coming all these years later, I believe the police know who did it, but just don't have the evidence. And they're hoping someone comes forward because that's the only way they're going to be able to arrest this person. I don't think it's going to happen, and I'll talk about why, but you never know. So listen up and see if you agree with me. And don't you love these long, Ooh, <laughs> these long qualified in- intros I have? Yes, I get so intrigued by yeah, it. I, well, I hope I don't let you down. Okay. Okay, so it. here we go. Um, by September 1992, and Becky, signal when you, if you're familiar with this case. Yes, I will. Okay. By September 1992, Susan Traskowitz was a ramp supervisor for Northwest Airlines at Boston's Logan Airport. Anything? No. Oh, not okay, yet. good. Then you don't know. <laughs> I might. Something okay. will ring a bell. So there was a dateline that I couldn't find too back in the 90s, too. A position she'd found hard to get to. She'd started with Northwest as a baggage handler in 1987 and had to do a lot of demeaning work as well as file a gender discrimination suit to finally be in a supervisory position, and more on that later. I don't have to tell any women out this there... This sounds very familiar. Yeah, I think I saw you'll, the you'll, dateline. Yeah, okay. you probably did. Okay. I don't have to tell any women out there, particularly those of a certain age, what a female supervisor in a male-dominated workplace had to endure. She was only the second woman Northwest had hired, or maybe she was the first, and then they hired another one right after her, I'm not sure, but there were only two women in the baggage handling division. But still, the company seemed really obtuse about the discrimination and harassment she would face, and more on that later, too. too. Sue, who spelled it S-U rather than S-U-E, was born in February 1965 and was 27 in 1992, just like you, Becky. Yes. She would have been in my class. Yes, if you had gone to Saugus High School. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She was from Saugus, Mass., just north of Boston. There's a bunch of little suburbs clustered right north of Boston along Route 1 there, Saugus and Rivia. I can never say Rivera. I always have to say it like Rivia. Lynn and those towns. She was one of three kids. She had a sister and brother. Her family said she was creative and athletic. And her teacher said she was also quiet but a good student. In a Boston Globe story, the day of her funeral or the day after her funeral, when the story ran, one teacher said, most teachers remember the name, but not the face when they heard the news. I flashed on her face immediately. Oh, well, la di da <laughs> I know. I'm not, My teachers would be like, ugh, her. Mine would be, God, she's finally shut up. I know, um, that's what mine would be, too. Her, her, <laughs> prince, her principal, Carmine Mascarella, said she was never in trouble once, not in all her four years. After high school, she attended nearby Salem State College and North Shore Community College and then the Mass College of Art in Boston. She wanted to be a cartoonist, and she was known as a talented artist. She was a big fan of the comic Peanuts, and one highlight of her life was meeting Charles Schultz, who drew Peanuts, and a drawing he did for her of Snoopy is etched on her gravestone. She actually had like 2,000 Snoopies. I'm not sure if any of them were sent to her family after she died, but her mother referenced at one point that she has 2,000 Snoopies boxed up. In Unsolved Mysteries, when it shows her bedroom, there's like all these Snoopies all over the place. What's clear is she really liked Snoopy. 
And here's a synopsis of what. Who happened. doesn't like Snoopy? Oh, yeah, I, I love mean, Snoopy. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a synopsis okay. of what happened. The night of September 12th, 1992, Sue was supervising the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift on the Northwest Ramp at Logan Airport in Boston. She offered to go get everyone's sandwiches. All accounts just say it was a Revere sub shop. Unsolved Mysteries implies, at least in my mind, that it was the famous Kelly's Roast Beef. I c- That's Eric. Uh, Eric's favorite place to eat. How... Does that not surprise me? <laughs> anyway. It's just, it doesn't surprise me. Okay, go on. Because it's like, oh, I'm so cool because I know about this place that everybody fucking knows about because it's... But the reason I thought it was was because on Unsolved Mystery, she goes, like, in a bad fake Boston accent, I'm going to the roast beef place. But it's funny, too, as a journalist, it's like not one story said where she was going, which I think would be relevant considering what, what happens later. So I figure it's a place with some clout because I know that businesses don't like to be associated with murders, even if they had nothing to do with it. They don't want to see the name of their business. But that's just my speculation. It it was a big enough place that they could say, don't put our fucking name in the paper where she was going. I could be over-speculating on that, too. Anyway, one account I read said she was insistent on going to get the sandwiches. A couple others imply she got a phone call that led to her decision to go. Police, after her death, said it was likely she was going to meet someone, and that's why she was so anxious to go out and get the sandwiches. In any case, she never came back. Monday morning, a guy working at Bravo Auto and Tire Service on Route 1 in Revere, and you notice that their name is in the stories, found an unfamiliar Toyota Tercel on the lot with blood dripping from the trunk. An unsolved mystery. Oh, I remember now. I know. I remember An unsolved, this one. right, yeah, there you go. <laughs> An unsolved mysteries, the guy says in a bad Boston accent that sounds more like a New York accent that I won't try to replicate. I see that I know it's not oil. I call you guys. He says to the cops in what sounds like, as I said, more of a New York accent. Sue's body was found in the trunk. She was fully clothed and there were no signs of sexual assault or robbery. Her purse was on her car seat. Her work ID, her wallet and stuff were all in her purse. The first Boston Globe story about the case on Tuesday, September 15th, the day after her body was found, said she died from blunt trauma and multiple stab wounds. Quote, we are investigating the death as a homicide, Revere Police Detective Roy. I know, that's what I said, Kalanino said, to which I say, good for you. Hmm, There seems to be (laughs) foul play here. I guess I shouldn't make fun. I know we shouldn't, sorry. Somebody died. As, as we used to say in the newsroom, somebody died. Stop making fun. Um, anyway, while Sue had endured extreme sexual harassment at work and complained to both Northwest and the Union about it, there was little mention in the Globe at first. A front page of the Lynn item from, from September 15th has a headline that reads, Police believe victim filed sexual harassment charge, and they flash that on Unsolved Mysteries, but I can't find a copy of the paper or the story anywhere, and um, I can't read the one on Unsolved Mysteries like I did a uh, screen grab and tried to enlarge it, and you know, you can't read it. A Boston Globe story from September 17th, three days after her body was found, said employees who were involved in a recently uncovered credit card scam were also being investigated in connection with her murder, but the Globe didn't specify why. While the sexual harassment was apparently known, for the time being, it also apparently wasn't considered much of a factor in her death. The Globe story about her funeral on September 20th has a weird laser focus on another type of harassment. Sue, raised a Catholic, had apparently recently joined the Boston Church of Christ, a fundamentalist sect that was thought of at the time as a cult. It's not to be confused with the United Church of Christ, which is a whole, which is a legitimate church 
From the late 1970s to 1988, the church had grown from a few hundred members to 2,200. According to culteducation.com, which apparently got its info from a 1988 Boston Globe article, which looks like they might have just cut and pasted it in, the church was run by a fellow named Kip McKean, who um, was described as charismatic and mesmerizing, and who, (laughs) yeah, like many cult leaders, and who, quote, Organized an aggressive recruiting strategy focused on college campuses and also pulled in young professionals in Metro Boston. Among other things, it was known for its required program of what it called discipleship, demanding total commitment and obedience and fostering an abject dependence. Quote, what they say is that if you're not converting people, then there must be sin in your life, said Robert Ludlum a Boston, not to be confused with the thriller writer of the same name, a member for four years. It got to the point in my life that I felt guilty for everything I did. But, and I had a friend in New Hampshire around that time, I, the late 80s or early 90s, who had a family member um, who got involved with this. The I think it was his sister, her husband, and their kid. And I can say that sounds about right. They ended up having to move to San Diego for the cult, and um, it was weird. I'm not sure if it's still around, but in 1992, after writing that big 1988 feature, the Boston Globe, that um, this cult website cut and pasted onto its site, the Globe likely would have been all over it, and it was definitely in the story about Sue's funeral. The first third or so of the story about her funeral, which was a Catholic mass, goes on about her involvement in the church and also says she couldn't stop talking about the church at work and co-workers felt harassed by it. Although that comes from a church member friend of hers and they don't quote any co-workers saying they felt harassed. Weirdly, no other stories... That's weird. Yeah, weirdly, no other stories about Sue or work or anything, mention it again, and I read many, many Boston Globe stories be- from 1992 to 2018 about this case. They don't even mention it as a possible motivation for her murder, and no court documents I came across that detail um, the, the happenings leading up to her murder, even the ones that detail the way she was harassed mentioned it. The story refers to her, and, and if I didn't make it clear, um, the, the Boston Globe story implies that co-workers felt harassed by her constant proselytizing and trying to get them to join the church, which I guess the whole point of the church was to get people to join. I guess it was like a religious Ponzi scheme or something. And she was also, according to the Boston Globe story, harassed for her beliefs, but uh, I've never read that anywhere since. One co-worker does say she was a beautiful person. She was everybody's friend, said Kilder Cardona. He did mention that she was always talking about religion, but he didn't. it didn't seem to bother him. It quoted another co-worker, oddly, as saying her promotion to supervising the baggage bundling crew was temporary, which I think is a little suspect and comes into play later. Nothing else Well, said, it was kind of temporary because she had it till she died. Right. Um, that's true. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, but I'd say it was odd because she got that job after fighting for it. She applied and was qualified, but Northwest passed her over for a guy. She filed a grievance because the guy had applied for the job after the posting had expired. And my guess, as somebody who was a union officer 
for 25 years is that management didn't want to give it to her, so they talked somebody else into applying for it, not thinking she or the union would fight it. That's just a guess. Normally, mm-hmm. a, normally, if somebody wants a job that's posted and they're in the union, they know enough to put in for it before the posting comes down. I mean, that's just union membership 101. So my guess is this, the management got somebody to apply for it. In any case, sometime in the year before she was killed, she made that complaint, she won the grievance and was given the job. It's unclear when it was, but one story says in the months before she was killed, a lawyer involved with the family later said it was the year before she was killed. But in any case, it was, you know, after she made that complaint, she made a second one that her sister's car, which she had driven to work, was vandalized, keyed. Um, and that was after she after she filed the grievance over the job, she made a complaint that the car was vandalized and those according to Northwest, are the only two complaints she ever made. That was in a September 22nd, 1992 Globe story, so it was almost two weeks after she was killed. In August, about a month before her murder, several employees who worked with her were subpoenaed by a grand jury on a credit card theft case that basically involved them stealing credit cards uh, out of luggage that came from a bank from Minneapolis and um, using or selling the cards. Sue was not involved in this crime spree. Over the years, though, 37 people who worked in that department would be indicted for it. Stories in the few years after Sue was killed said police didn't consider the harassment against her or the credit card issue factors in her murder, though they later changed their minds on the credit card thing. From what I can tell, they initially keyed in on the fact that she got a call and used the sandwich run as a reason to go meet someone. That actually very likely happened, but I don't think it happened in a vacuum. So here's the rest of the story. Okay, Paul Harvey. <laughs> I knew you. <laughs> the rest. Uh, most of our listeners probably don't know who he is. No, Just, no you have to be young. old like us. Okay. Yeah, okay. When Sue Taraskowitz began working as a baggage handler for Northwest at Logan Airport in 1987, as I said, she was only the second woman Northwest had hired in that position. And that, of course, means harassment. Sue made multiple complaints, both to the union and the company, which obviously didn't go anywhere since they didn't come to light until more than a year after her death. And again, they kept saying the only official complaints were in the last year that she was there, the grievance over the job and the fact that her car was keyed. In November 1993, 14 months after she died, her mom Marlene finally got up the wheel to go into Sue's room. Sue lived in an in-law apartment at their house in Saugus. Unsolved Mysteries, as I said, shows this almost kind of creepy, snoopy, festooned room. And maybe that's what it looked like. <laughs> I don't well, know. you never but know. In any case, Marlene found a briefcase in a closet, and in it, a spiral-bound notebook that the press kept stressing cost $1.39. I'm not sure why that was important. Maybe the price tag was still on it. That Sue kept a journal for several months in 1989. That was three years before she was killed. The entries detailed sexual harassment that she endured. And here's some of it. She was frequently reduced to tears by being called bitch, whore, and slut. Obscene anonymous phone calls were made to her home late at night. On a work schedule, you'll like this one, Becky, with her name, Sue, S-U, and then her last initial, T, some genius had written an L between the S and U. So it said slut. Isn't that Well, yeah, Yeah. God. And she had to use whiteout to cover it up because no one would fix it. 
that was on the work assignment board. Photographs of nude women were left in the break room for her to see. Obscene graffiti was written about her in the bellies of airplanes and on the trucks baggage handlers used and was not removed until she complained and asked that it was and then it would just reappear again. It was an ongoing thing. When women's underwear or hygiene products fell out of airplanes, which I guess happens, they'd also be hung in the break room for everyone to see, including management who didn't seem to want to do anything about it. Her locker was urinated in. When she complained, yes, yes. When she complained, she was assigned. Men are such. I'm sorry, but men are fucking gross. They are. That's all. Yes, thank you. When she complained, she was assigned to work the lavatory truck, the one that pumps out the bathrooms from the airplanes. And and apparently, no matter how hard you try, it's impossible not to get human waste on you when you do that. So when she complained about being harassed, she was assigned to do that. And people wonder why women don't complain. When the diaries came to light 14 months after her death, Marlene took them to the cops. Apparently, this was the first time the extent of the harassment against her had come to light for the police. Which I guess, if no one was going to tell them, no one was going to tell them, but I can't imagine that it hadn't come up if they were interviewing her co-workers. Well, I mean... I, unless they, every single one of them was an asshole. Well, you'll hear more. And she did complain, like I said, to both the Union and Northwest. And also she did have a boyfriend who she'd broken up with shortly before her death, who she confided in. And there were also a couple of co-workers who stuck up for her. More about them later. So my guess is the cops just didn't think sexual harassment had anything to do with her being murdered. Maybe they're so used to doing it to the women they work with, it just seems like normal human behavior. In the November 18th, 1993 Boston Globe story about the harassment after the diary was found, Machinist Local 1726, that's the union, President Ed Burke said that harassment complaints are handled by the union steward for each airline. Quote, as far as I'm concerned, things here at Northwest are pretty good, he said. Four of the guys she mentioned by name in her diary are also ones who have been subpoenaed because of the credit card fraud. At the time the diaries came to light, the attorney representing her family, Herbert Holt, said that the harassment had put her in a hell zone and her murder, quote, must be viewed through the window of sexual harassment. And he's the only guy saying this, and I agree with him. Long before this point, the feds had become involved in her murder investigation and said they believed that her murder was because she was suspected of talking to investigators about the credit card theft, though she knew nothing more about it than anyone else did, and there's no indication she had talked to investigators. But Holt said, This is a case about a woman who broke through the ceiling and paid the consequences. Everyone knew about the credit card thefts. She had no special knowledge about them. Her diary, my guess was to document the harassment. There's no indication of why she stopped doing it in October 1989, but maybe she just gave up. Anybody who's been in a union when something's happening to someone, you're told, document, document, document. When something happens, write it down. And she was writing down the harassment. She was writing down the times of the phone calls she got and what the person said. Like I said, there was six to eight months... Here's another interesting thing that slowly came out after the harassment thing came out, but after a few years was dropped from articles about the case, though it seems to me one of the most relevant possible things. In April 1989, Sue attempted to break up a fistfight between a co-worker named Joe Nuzo and another guy. Nuzo called her, uh, excuse my language, a fucking cunt because she had gotten involved and tried to break up the fight. She complained Ugh. that he called her that, yep. He'd been in a little trouble before, 
so Northwest fired him. Although it was only fake fired because he was back on the job in six months, October of 1989. So her... Diary was basically the amount of time when he was not working. He made it clear to everyone while he was out of work that he blamed Sue. He didn't make a secret to his pals that he was behind a lot of the harassment she was going through, though obviously he had partners on the job too, and obviously it went on before he was fired and after he came back and other people were doing it then too. The diary, like I said, though no story makes this point, seemed to to cover the time from when he was fired to the time he came back on the job. So maybe she just said, fuck it, I can't win, you know. I don't blame her. I mean, no. you know, no. what are you supposed what to do? What are you supposed to do, right? According to a later court document, while he was out of work, Nuzo, quote, engaged in a campaign of menacing conduct directed at Taraskowitz. He keyed her car, and so, and this was in 1989, so her car being keyed, was apparently a consistent thing that happened over the years. He slashed her tires, he staked out her house, he made anonymous telephone calls, and told others he would exact revenge. Nuzo blamed Taraskowitz for his discharge. He swore to get even. He promised to make her life miserable. He drove by her house with a friend and noted that her street was dark, and he said she was going to pay. You would think that when she was killed, somebody would have said, Let's take a look at Joe Nuzzo. Yes, you would think that he would be a friggin' mm-hmm. uh, suspect. Well, he, there's another fellow involved, too, a guy named Robert Brooks. He's the one in Unsolved Mysteries known as Bobby. <laughs> when Sue first began... <laughs> Why is that funny? Well, you have to watch the Unsolved oh, Mysteries. Okay. When Sue first began working at Northwest in 1987, they hooked up had sex a couple times, according to the court document, but that was the extent of the relationship. Their paths didn't cross much on the job, though he at one point smashed her radio in the break room and they got in a very volatile fight about it. The Unsolved Mysteries depiction of that is quite dramatic. And it it weirdly has some guy coming to her defense, and I know her boyfriend worked at Logan, but he was a plain fuel guy. And there's nothing to indicate in anything I've read that he was around sticking up for her while this was going on. (laughs) But somehow, Unsolved Mysteries makes it look like she had a knight in shining armor there. Later, Brooks would tell a variety of law enforcement and grand juries that he hardly knew Nuzo. But that wasn't true. In fact, that court document is part of a perjury action against him a few years after this. He was actually best man at Nuzo's wedding, and Nuzo was an usher at his wedding according to the court. And Brooks certainly knew how much Nuzo was out to get Sue. When Nuzo came back to work in October 1989, he launched the credit card theft project. No one makes this point, but my feeling is he's a psychopath and felt emboldened by the fact he'd gotten away with everything he had already gotten away with with Sue and other problems that led to his firing because him calling her a fucking cunt was only the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think Nuzo felt he was untouchable he had been fired and came back like a phoenix rising from the ashes. And as we know... Or like a president after impeachment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to put too fine a point on it, but as we know, that's how psychopaths roll. The way the credit card scam worked was... And by the way, this is from a 2009 Boston Globe anniversary story of Sue's death by Shelley Murphy, who is the only one that doesn't have some rope cut and paste story or the typical the parents are hoping for results story but it actually gives details on the stuff that happened years before that no other story I read has because uh, she's an awesome reporter she did a lot of the whitey bulger stuff she obviously did some digging 
and has details everyone else just glossed over. What she has about the scam, here's how it works. The credit cards were manufactured in the Midwest in Minneapolis and shipped east by Northwest, which also has its headquarters in Minneapolis. They were in mail bags, and it seems like the baggage handlers knew what they were. I don't know if they were marked special or what, but they were these mailbags full of credit cards. The um, guys running the scam, led by Nuzo, would get fake driver's licenses made in the names of people on the cards. And back then, it wasn't that hard to fake a driver's license. And they do everything with the credit cards from buy jewelry to get cash advances at casinos in Vegas and Atlantic City, where I guess you can get big cash advances with a credit card, you know, that you couldn't get at a bank back then. They'd also sell them to fences, you know, who would sell them the court document says Brooks, you know, Nuzo's buddy, who had briefly had a relationship with Sue years before, was a peripheral player, not a big wheel in the credit card scam. He didn't steal the cards, but he occasionally shopped with Nuzo using the stolen cards, and he sometimes functioned as a paid lookout for Nuzo and the other thieves. The investigation into the theft by the U.S. Postal Service and FBI began in 1991, about a year before the Guys were subpoenaed. And come on, guys. Like, no one was going to catch on that the cards were missing. You know, like, you're going to get caught. Because obviously, people aren't getting their credit cards. And they were on the plane from Minnesota. You know, it's not like they just take these cards and throw them on there. They track them and shit, you know? But anyway, it was a pretty quiet investigation until August 4th, 1992. You know, a little more than a month before Sue was killed, when several baggage handlers received subpoenas from a Boston-based federal grand jury, which the court document, I got this from, calls the credit card grand jury, to differentiate it from the murder grand jury, which is referenced later. Members of the ring, including Nuzo, wondered whether there was a stool pigeon among the baggage handlers, according to the court document. In Brooks's presence, Nuzo said that Tarasquewis was likely the rat. It says he referred to her both as a rat and a snitch. On August 14th, which would have been our sister Nikki's 24th birthday that year, just saying. Ooh, um, yeah. A Northwest official confiscated Nuzo's work identification, which effectively ended his employment at Northwest. The court document says that in rapid sequence, Nuzo learned that he was target of the grand jury investigation. He hired a lawyer. He griped to friends following a meeting between his attorney and a prosecutor about the severity of the charges he faced and also the extravagance of the lawyer's fees. And he made it clear he blamed Sue for all of this. Less than a week after he complained to his buddies about that blaming Sue, Sue was murdered. By the way, the document... Hmm, very, very interesting timing. Yeah, yeah, interesting timing. And that document was filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office in an appeal to allow Brooks' relationship with Nuzo and involvement in all the Sue stuff to be allowed in a perjury action against Brooks. It was about four or five years after this. And it became this whole legal entanglement that involved the removal of a judge and all this. But Brooks was finally found guilty of perjury. Although he did... If you're looking for a snitch, once this all came down, he did cooperate with the feds, and it was largely his testimony that put his buddy Nuzo in prison and some other people. And I know you're asking yourself, where was Bobby Brooks between the time the subpoenas came down on August 4th and Sue's murder on September 13th? Yes, I was wondering Yeah, good, good, good. I'm glad you were. The minute the news of the grand jury investigation leaked in early August... Bobby Brooks applied for reassignment with Northwest and was transferred with his new bride to Minnesota. He got there on August 25th. 
Following Sue's murder, he was subpoenaed to appear um, before the credit card grand jury back in Massachusetts, so he had to return to Massachusetts, and he asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege, and for all of you who don't know all the amendments, that's the one where you can um, not testify on the grounds that could incriminate you, and that was the credit card grand jury. He was also interrogated the same day by a Massachusetts state trooper about Sue's murder. They talked for about an hour, and Brooks downplayed his relationship with Nuzo and claimed that he had only one telephone conversation with Nuzo in the week after Sue's murder. And it just came up in small talk, like I'm envisioning the conversation was, Hey, did you hear about Sue? Yeah, too bad. Murdered, huh? Yeah, ain't that a kick in the head? You know, I... That's probably what their conversation was like. Not Now, here's where the newspaper stories fall short. All the Globe stories said he'd only talked to Nuzo once, but never said what the time frame was. So I'm like, was he saying he had only talked to Nuzo once in his life or whatever? What the fuck? But that court document, um, which, by the way, is better written and more entertaining than a lot of news stories, said that Brooks and Nuzo only talked once during the week after the murder. Or Brooks said they only talked once during the week after the murder. But long-distance phone records, people, it turns out he talked to Nuzo for 22 minutes the night Sue was murdered, right before the murder, and twice the next day before her body was found. He also said that on the night of, it says September 13th, but I'm going to assume it means September 12th, 13th, since it was 1 a.m. September 13th, she disappeared. Um, he said he'd been at work in the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport handling luggage until 11 p.m. This turned out later not to be true according to work records and according to the court docs, his long-distance phone records. So that must have shown him being at home or something. You know, back then no one had... Yeah, back then they would... I mean, the long-distance records would tell where... Yeah. I right, mean... if, if you made a phone call, people knew where you were because you were calling from that place. But back to what was going on at Logan that night. Sue collected food orders to go out and get sandwiches. Before she left, she got a phone call from a source that has yet to be identified, at least publicly. It's not clear if she'd already volunteered to make the sandwich run before she got the call, or if she was going to make the sandwich run and then she got a call. Um, But around 1 a.m. she left to get the sandwiches, and she never came back. Sue had never had an unapproved absence at work. She was never late for work, and she never left early. Her record was spotless. She'd certainly never taken off from work and not come back in the middle of a shift. And remember, she was the supervisor. Yet, none of her co-workers raised the alarm. In fact, they not only punched out for her at the end of the shift, but they also punched her back in from the sandwich run making it look like she'd come back. Huh, interesting. Yeah, isn't that? Her parents, the morning of September 14th, learned she was missing from a friend, and they called the police, only to find out that she'd just been found murdered in the trunk of her car in the parking lot of a Revere body shop. As I said earlier, eventually 37 people were indicted on the charges of the credit card scheme. Nuzo, deemed the instigator of the scheme, was sentenced to three years in prison. His pal Brooks got 18 months for obstruction of justice for um, the perjury stuff. Also, by 1998, Nuzo had been publicly named a suspect in Sue's murder. Not on purpose. It came out in federal appeals court, a result of the court documents I've used as a source here. It's important to note that over the last couple decades, Nuzo has asserted his innocence and hasn't publicly... Of course he has. Yeah, he hasn't publicly spoken about the murder. The Boston Globe has asked to speak to him and he is not talking about it. The federal grand jury investigation into the murder ended a few years after it with no resolution. 
In the next few years, up to the early 2000s, there weren't many stories about it. There were a few anniversary stories, but even those fizzled out. There were a couple years where all there was was a little three-paragraph AP story. Every year around the time of the murder, there'd be a little item in local papers that there was a benefit for the Susan Taraskowitz Memorial Fund. It used to be held at a roller rink since she loved roller skating, but then later it was at other venues. Every year, her mom would lay flowers at the auto body shop and then spend the day holding a sign in front of the Northwest Terminal at Logan to crying sexual harassment. Oh, that's sweet. Well, nothing much happened with the murder investigation, and the credit card scam got all wrapped up nicely. A lot happened with that, and it all happened fast, and a lot of people were arrested, and... Nice investigation there, but there was some other stuff going on. Um, Her family sued Northwest for damages caused by the sexual harassment. Northwest, of course, fought the lawsuit. At first, they argued the suit was not filed within six months of the harassment, so it passed the allowable period to file. Her parents, who filed the suit, argued that they filed within six months of finding the diary, which is when they found out about it, and the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination in December 1994 agreed with the parents. Northwest also claimed it provided education courses for workers about sexual harassment after Sue complained. And it's not really clear how they would have done that because they claimed the only complaint was the grievance over the job. So when would they have offered sexual harassment training in response to her complaints? And even if they did, I guess it didn't take too well since she was harassed right up until the day she died. And laughably, they also pointed out that they fired two workers after she complained in 1989. I guess the fact that they got hired back so one could launch a massive credit card theft scam is beside the point. I know. It's so (laughs) fucking stupid. I know. They did settle in October 1995, $75,000 for the Susan Tereskowitz Memorial Fund, which goes to scholarships for Saugus High grads and also provides money for disaster victims. And also, Northwest agreed to provide $250,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of her murderer. On November 2nd, 1995, shortly after the settlement, a half-page ad by Northwest appeared in the Globe asking for information. While the Discrimination Commission said its focus was not to tie the harassment in with the murder, Sue's parents said if Northwest had been looking out better for their daughter and taking her complaint seriously, the murder may not have happened. Herbert Holtz The parent's attorney said, From day one, this case has been about solving Susan's murder, and the significance of today's settlement is that Northwest and the parents have both chosen to do the right thing in joining forces and pushing forward with the resolution of her murder. That was in 1995. So that was... uh, How many years? 25 years ago. Jeez. Um, Ooh, you were able to figure it out. Yeah, I did. I was. It took me a minute. It's like that cognitive um, Alzheimer's test that Trump has. I did too. When Holtz, in November 1993, first pushed for the sexual harassment to be looked into, he also had affidavits from two co-workers of Sue who had the guts to stand up and say something. No surprise that they were the only other woman on the job, Deb Mazikas, and a black guy, Edward Snow. Both are also on the 1996 Unsolved Mysteries episode, by the way. 
They were both on disability when they filed their affidavits. Both have been injured on the job. Um, I can't remember exactly. One of them slipped really bad on the ice. I think it was Edward Snow and hurt him, hurt his back, ruptured a disc or something. And I can't remember what happened to Deb. But Northwest called the charges that they were fired because they stuck up for Sue hogwash. But they both ended up getting settlements. And a little side note, the reason I mentioned Edward Snow is black is because um, this morning I was reading an article in the Boston Globe by Leslie Visser, the legendary Boston Globe sports writer. She was one of the first women to cover professional sports and one of the first women to cover an NFL team. And in this column I was reading this morning, she said the black players on the Patriots were the only ones who treated her with respect. And she asked Sugar Bear... (laughs) Yes, and she asked Sugar Bear Hamilton, one of those players once, why they were so considerate. Like, they would go over, like, game film with her and point things out to her and stuff. And um, because she wasn't allowed in the locker room, it's a good story. So, like, she couldn't talk to people because she had to wait outside the locker room. So if one guy's going to his car, she's trying to get him. Then another guy's going to his car, she can't get him, kind of thing. And she asked Sugar Bear Hamilton once why they were so considerate. And he said, because we know what it's like to be the only one. So. Aww. Yeah. And yeah, I think I read, uh, I heard her interviewed on that show, Only a Game, that's on Yeah, NPR. Leslie Visser. Yeah, she was one of my yeah. childhood heroes. But articles about Sue point out that she stood up for those who were treated poorly, particularly minorities and other women even before she was a supervisor. In 1994, Sue's family put a billboard up on Route 1 in Saugus asking for information. Either Saugus or Revere, it's not clear, because the billboard has moved around over the years. And the Globe points out that she was among the first to do the billboard thing. Almost seems either way from it's written in the story that they're just guessing at that. But yeah, okay, we'll go with that. There was hope the credit card scam info that came out over the years would lead to the murderer, but or lead to conviction of the murderer, but nothing did. Anniversary stories, when they appeared, were generally about how the parents weren't giving up. In 2002, on the 10th anniversary, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office released photos of Sue's belongings, including a necklace that was never found, hoping it would stir something up. Inexplicably, despite the fact that they had an extensive story and a huge photo of Dan Connolly, the Suffolk County DA, and Marlene, Sue's mother, and stuff, the Globe didn't see fit to run a photo of the necklace or any of the other photos of the stuff That's they released. Weird. It, I think it was a very poor editorial choice not to run the photos since... Well, don't talk about the freaking necklace and not have a picture of it. Right. I mean, they release photos hoping they jog someone's memory, and the Globe does describe the necklace, which I will in a minute, but I just think it's really weird. Like, they released them a couple days before, and the Globe had this little brief saying they released them without having a photo, and then they had this big press conference about it, and the Globe had a story covering that on the anniversary, and still didn't have a photo. But Well, maybe they didn't have a picture of the necklace, unless there's the a picture police, of her wearing... The DA's office oh. released a photo okay, okay, of okay. the necklace. The, the necklace is a 16-inch gold chain with serpentine links that her parents had given her for her birthday. It had several charms, including a medallion with Jesus' face, a crucifix, and Snoopy. D.A. Nice. I know. And <laughs> Jesus and Snoopy, what else do you need, right? And Suffolk County D.A. Daniel Connolly said they were also trying new scientific techniques. Now, remember, this was 2002. On the evidence, particularly all the blood, the... 
acronym DNA was not used in the story. I mean, I know it came out in the mid-90s, but if I remember right, it was still, people were still feeling it out back then. They never specified what these new techniques were, but apparently they didn't come to anything. By 2009, her parents were divorced. Her dad lived in Florida. He later, he died a few years ago. Her brother, Ronnie, died in 2007. But her mom, Marlene, is still on the front lines. She holds her vigil every year. She puts the flowers at the auto body shop, which I guess that stretch of Route 1A has changed a lot, but I think there's still an auto body shop there, and Marlene still leaves flowers there. And then in recent years, at least in 2014, 16, and 18, the Massachusetts State Police have filmed a video of her talking about Sue. It's like seven or eight minutes. I'll put one on our website. She talks about Sue, the murder, her quest for justice, and she says, I'm a very healthy woman, and I'm not going away, she says in one of them. And this is something we've seen in uh, some of our cases, like Maura Murray and other cases, where the thing driving any movement on the case is a parent who is not going to give up on their kid being murdered. And you watch a lot of true crime shows, and you see that that the ones, even though sometimes it bugs the shit out of the police... These parents who do not give up and sometimes have to do a lot of the work themselves are the ones who are responsible for cracking the case. And Marlene is hoping that as people grow older who were involved, some of them now may have grandchildren, she thinks the case will gnaw at them. And, and, you know, maybe it will. Well, you know, whoever did it, other people knew about it. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to talk a little about that. It's been obvious for more than a decade now that they're just waiting for someone to talk, even well more than a decade, two decades. Okay, you know, I have trouble counting. Marlene says she won't give up. The state police have said it's her persistence that has kept the case in the spotlight more. I guess you can't really call it the spotlight, but, you know, every once in a while it'll pop up. You know, the past couple of years, a couple of podcasts, aside from ours, have done it and stuff. I did it because I just came across an old article about it, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, because I've been reading the Boston Globe every day since 1973, and um, so I remembered it well. But anyway, obviously, if there was evidence connecting anyone to Sue's murder, solid evidence, they would have been charged. But this case obviously revolves around a man who knew he could get away with a lot, was incensed that a woman was upsetting his happy little kingdom, had no problem with making it clear to everyone how he felt about it and what he was going to do to her. I feel like he managed to get his pals worked up, too. Guys like him are good at that. You know, they have a lot of followers who will buy in because they'd rather be on his side than not be on his side. As I said before, it was no surprise to me at all that the two people who stood up for her were a woman and a black guy because they were probably not on this guy's part of his little club anyway. I don't think it mattered to him if she was the quote-unquote snitch or not. In fact, I doubt, like I said earlier, there even was a snitch. You can't steal that many credit cards and not have someone involved with the credit cards getting to where they're supposed to get notice. But I think he saw it as a way to get his co-workers worked up against her. Because I think it goes back to him not wanting her there. And being pissed off that even though he got his job back, she had the nerve to complain about him and make him lose his job. And you know I'm how sure. that's... Right? Yeah. And it's all somebody else's fault. They can act like a total asshole all their life and anything bad that happens to them is is the fault of the person who complained about him. I think that her murder involved an orchestrated conspiracy. And I'm sure this isn't anything the police don't know. You know, this isn't fucking rocket surgery, you know. The fact that they punched her back into 
into work when she didn't come back with the sandwiches and then punched her out for the shift shows that. They didn't do it because they wanted to help her out. I think that's clear. If they cared about Sue, the police would have known a lot more about what was going on there or stuff wouldn't have been going on there. You know, it's not like, oh, gee, Sue didn't come back with the sandwiches. Well, let's punch her in so she doesn't get in trouble. That doesn't pass a straight face test to me. I don't know. What do you think, Becky? No, yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't like her that much, so why would they be covering for her? Right, right. You know? And, and, and it's not like she said, oh, gee, I'm going to go meet my boyfriend or whatever. Right. Can you, if I don't get back in time, just punch me in. Is it, right, is she it was like, going to pick up sandwiches. So it's not, that's not a trip, even though she did get a call. And who knows, and I think she was well, set up. One, one of the big problems is the police, at least for the first several years, didn't think that the way she was treated was that big a deal or had anything to do with it. It's scary the behavior of one or two guys didn't raise red flags. Granted, the police may not have known all that was going on, but I bet it came up and they just didn't follow up. And it, the problem is that estimates are that one to ten out of every hundred people is a psychopath and they're able to manipulate people and get their way or bully people and stuff, and people get either numbed to their behavior or just don't understand how bad the behavior is. It's possible the police didn't know the extent of what was going on, but I also feel like at the beginning they were looking outside, she got this phone call, and the mysterious person who called her, and they weren't looking inside at her co-workers. It didn't compute that this could have had anything to do with work. And poor Sue, she's not the first one who's been a victim, not only a brutal mistreatment by men, but also of no one who can do anything about it, giving a shit. A murder where the guys in charge don't have the imagination to tie those pieces together. And then it's too late. It ravaged her family. It ravaged her friends. You know, even if you can't prevent the person from getting murdered, the damage it does, you know, the ripples that go out to people and destroy their lives go on and on and on. According to a page dedicated to Sue on the Massachusetts State Police website, she had recently received high marks on the fire department placement exam, which positioned her eighth on the reserve list for the Swampscott Mass Fire Department. On one hand, good for her because it's wicked tough to get a fire department job even these days. On the other hand, I, all I can picture is her going into another toxic male environment where the new I know. pictures and the graffiti and the urinating in her locker and in her boots and everything was just going to start all over again. Um, her mom says she loved her job working at Logan Airport, working outside on the ramp despite the crappy weather. In fact, one of her favorite things was de-icing airplanes. And her mom says she met so many people and had an autograph book signed by so many people. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but she met Charles Bronson. She met Max Gale from Barney Miller. <laughs> well, I like him. Back in the 90s was a bigger deal. He played Wojciechowicz. So maybe it was, you know, the Wojciechowicz, sorry. I was going to say it's the Polish connection. Her mom says she loved the fact of meeting them all. She loved to meet them. She also used to make all the Halloween costumes for all the kids in the neighborhood. And her mom says, I will get justice for Susan. Susan wasn't perfect, but she was a loving and very giving girl. She would do anything for you. The only thing Susan wanted to be was a, was be a supervisor on the ramp and to help people. Oh, so oh well, that, I wanted to ask you about the phone call. So I, obviously, you would have said if they had figured out where it came from, I, but they couldn't. They, uh, they I, couldn't. 
Well, you know, I don't know because it was it was one of those things where it was I can hear Daisy purring, um, but that's okay. I'm relying on news stories, and so you get different mentions of this phone call, but I couldn't find anything that talked about it in detail or what happened. Maybe it's one of those things that the police are not releasing a lot of info about, you know, because you know how they hold some things back yeah, to use as evidence against people. You know, and it's not clear if it came... And then she said, hey, I'm going to go out for sandwiches. Or she was going out for sandwiches and it came. But the impression... Oh my god, Daisy's so loud. Can't you put her somewhere? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, can't you put her to sleep? And my guess, best guess on it, is it was part of the setup. Because obviously her murder was planned. They had to get her out of the outside somewhere. If she was going to Kelly's Roast Beef or anywhere else, it was kind of on the way to where her body was found. So there was some kind of setup to get her out of there. It, obviously, it was a planned murder. Yes, it you was. Know? And, and the thing is, too, if it had been, like, at first, when she was first killed, like, her parents thought it was this random attack, even though she wasn't sexually assaulted or anything. But if you randomly attack someone, you don't take the time to hide them in the trunk. Yeah. If you kill somebody for no good reason, not to rob them, not to rape them, but just for the sake of killing some random person, you just let their body drop where it may. She wasn't shot. She was beaten and stabbed. So it had to happen outside of the car. Yeah. You know, maybe it happened in the car. Maybe somebody was hiding in her car. Who knows? Yeah. I don't. Uh... Hopefully they're, someday they'll arrest. Like I said, I think they know who did it. They just don't have enough to charge the guy. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah. too, people, I, I know this is one of my beating the drum things, but people will recognize that certain behavior by mostly men, some women do it too, that manipulative, angry, blaming behavior is a red flag for, for future problems. They don't all become murderers, but, you know, read The Gift of Fear is all I'm saying. Yes. It's just sad because you think of, and we've talked about this before too, all the unsolved murders of people out there where you think if somebody had just, even if it didn't prevent the person from being killed, that in the immediate aftermath, if one person had said, you know what, why don't we look at it this way? Yeah. They would find a solution. Even if somebody... Somebody would just open their freaking mouth and tell the police. There are people that know. It's just right. like almost every unsolved thing. There are people, they don't want to get well, sucked into it. Maybe and they, they don't, don't, you know. they don't want to get killed either. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so we have recommendations. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to go first? Yes. I'm not doing true crime. I know this much is true. I watched it on HBO with my mother, who didn't enjoy it, although she did watch it with me. So I'm going to do Negative Nelly's Watching on I Know This Much is True, starring Mark Ruffalo. Yes. Oh, I love And, that. okay, so I read the book way back in, like, 1998 when it first by came Wally out. By Wally Lamb. Yes, by Wally Lamb. It's a 900-page book. It's very long. Oh, I love a good long And book. I also listened to it on audio with... It must have been, like, our family reunion in Elmira. It was probably in 2000. I was, you'd think I'd remember more of the 
book, but it was 20 years ago, so I don't know. Uh, the ending was different. Let me just synopsize the storyline. Uh, it's about identical twin brothers who were born in 1950. Actually, one was born, they were born on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, mm. uh, you know, before and after midnight, and 1950, or, or 1949, 1950, whatever, it doesn't really matter. And one of them is schizophrenic, and the other one is not schizophrenic. So I'm going to go through Negative Nellies, and then I'll talk about it. Bad reenactments. I'm taking away a point because even though there's no reenactments, I've done this before when the source material, there's source material and then there's a, you know, this is based on a book. I'm basing it on how well it follows the book. So I'm taking a point off. It does follow the storyline of the book, but I feel like if you're going to do a six-part series, I know it's a really long book, but they left a lot out, uh -huh. and I didn't think that they needed to, and I realize they're different genres, <laughs> or actually mediums, but I feel like they could have followed the book a little bit. I, it seems like in the book there was a lot more about their childhood and their teen years and stuff. There's a subplot story about his grandfather, the twins' grandfather, who's a um, immigrant from Sicily, and he's written this like memoir that was written in Italian. And uh, Dominic, the uh, unschizophrenic twin, gets it translated because he wants to give it to his mother, but she dies oh, of yeah. cancer before that happens. It seems like there's a lot more of that in the book, and I don't think that it's integrated well enough into the storyline in the in the movie, so I'm taking a point off. Okay. Narrative cliches, I am taking half a point off. The whole Italian family, I guess it wasn't that, that much of a cliche, but it was a little bit of one. And also, I don't know, there was a lot of things in it that just annoyed me. I don't know why. He's a very much a hothead, Dominic. It focuses mainly on him, and the book does too. It's his point of view. Um, Thomas is the other as the other twin, that one was schizophrenia. And I felt like the mother, the asshole stepfather, that's kind of a cliche, mm -hmm. whatever. So racial gender obtuseness, I'm going to say no. I thought that they did ignore a little bit of, there was a character in the book, Ralph Drinkwater, who is Native American, who, spoiler alert, turns out to be the cousin of Dominic and Thomas. But, you know, he was just another character. There wasn't, like, this big... But one thing that maybe I'll talk about it after, they ignored a lot of that storyline, so I'm going to talk about that after. Lack of good visuals, no. It takes place in, you know, Connecticut in a small town, and it looks like it was filmed, if not in that area, in New England somewhere, in New York. It's Maybe it was in Canada. I don't know. I didn't check. You can always tell if it's Canada by the way the houses look. They look a little different. Yeah. If it was, I couldn't tell. Missing pieces, yes, I'm taking a point off. Ooh. Because, like what I said, I remember there being a lot more of well, the childhood. Can I just ask, and this is just a devil's advocate thing. Are you missing pieces because you're comparing it to the book? Or were yes. they missing pieces for you watching 
the movie uh, as it's movie. hard to it's hard to separate it when you've read the book if yeah, i hadn't okay. read the book i'd have a different review and i don't have but an I, opinion one way or the other on what way you should do that because it's your review but i just was curious i'd be interested if somebody hadn't read the book if they a lot of times when i'm watching a something that's based on a book you have the knowledge of what the story right. is already so right. it's hard to say that's, objectively that's why i can never like the movie not and even though i i hate kevin spacey anyway so i couldn't like it anyway but the shipping news because oh, the, they changed so many random things and including, the casting was right in the yeah. casting and stuff for no good reason and ruined it, what was a great book but anyway inaccuracy and acronisms no it does go around in time a lot goes to the late 60s and then it you know goes up to it takes place in 1990 during the uh gulf war the beginning of the book, and the same thing happens at the beginning of the movie, Thomas cuts his hand off. He's in the library, the public library, and he cuts off his hand because he feels he has to make a sacrifice to God to help prevent the war or something. It seemed pretty true to the time. There wasn't someone, like, with a cell phone or whatever right. in 1990. Storytelling, I'm taking off half a point because I feel like if they were going to have the grandfather's memoir, they needed to have a little more of it. It was kind of plopped in there. Like in the book, it flowed better. It was important to the book, so I wouldn't want them to take it out, but I don't think it was written in very well. I honestly don't think the script was great. It was pretty depressing, and I don't mm -hmm. think the book was as depressed. Freshness, I'd say, even though it's based on a book that was written over 20 years ago i thought it was the movie itself is different the acting is so good and i'm going to talk about that at the end repetition no beating the drum no they're talking about someone who's mentally ill i thought it was really kind of a good depiction of what it's like for a family member of somebody that has especially it was severe schizophrenia and how that's why I wish they had shown his childhood more because in the book he talked about what he was like as a child and then how it you know developed into schizophrenia you know when they were in college and it's just I don't know I know that it's a shorter amount of time to explain it and it was a really long book but Right. So I, it's overall, it has a seven. I would recommend it to people because Mark Ruffalo... I love him. You know, it's not like the Patty Duke thing. If you didn't know him and know that it was two actors, you would not know it was two actors. Well, oh, and that's another thing I hate. I didn't like the casting of when they were little boys, they were fine. But the college age ones, I mean, the guy was a good actor and stuff, but he looked nothing like him and it, the crap out of me. Anyway, yeah. go on. Uh, but no, I read, I can't remember, somewhere in an interview with Mark Ruffalo. I can't remember exactly how they normally do that, you know, the Patty Duke, one person playing two people thing. But... What they did in this one was they had a guy who did the actual acting, you know, not just somebody reading lines uh -huh. or whatever, but they did the scenes twice, basically, which oh, I guess yeah. isn't how they normally do it. Thomas is stocky. Right. And then Dominic is in good shape. And it, it's just it's crazy. So the other characters in it are a uh, social worker who works at the state mental hospital and Rosie O'Donnell plays her and she does such a good job. She's really, really good. Oh, good. I hadn't seen her in anything for so long. And Archie Punjabi plays Dr. Patel. Oh, good. I think Dr. Patel had a more... I just remember her as being a bigger character in the book, but Catherine Hahn plays his ex-wife. Yeah, I heard she's really good. Yeah, Dessa. Her name's Dessa. It's good. And in a lot of ways, it's not like I thought 
Oh, this is nothing like the book. Like, the casting is really good, except for the college-age guys. Even though they're good actors, it's just that right. I don't... Right, it can be like, jarring I've when I've said they this don't. before. Yeah, yeah, it's annoying. And I know it's probably really, really hard to find someone who's a decent actor and looks like the other person. So, I don't know what you can do about that. The book itself ends... It's really annoying. I was reading online earlier today a review of the movie and it said in the book he wins the lottery at the end and I'm like no he doesn't win the lottery in the book he finds out his father is Henry Drinkwater who is Native American and there's a casino and he somehow proves who his father was and he gets his share of the money from the casino it's not he doesn't win the lottery yeah so that's annoying to me somebody obviously didn't read the book I don't know. Yeah. And the book, his girlfriend gets pregnant by somebody else. At the end of the book, he and Dessa get back together and adopt her baby because she dies of AIDS. And I forgot about that. Till oh, I yeah. Read. But yeah, that's really a lot funny. Of you're, you're laughing at that. No, I'm laughing because so much happens at the yes. end. And I, I was like, oh. Yeah. I still enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed this. It was pretty depressing, though. I mean, like, mm. not much good happens, and all sorts of shit happens to the Dominic. Like, he gets in a car, he falls off. Oh, first he gets in a car accident, then he falls off a ladder because he's a house painter. Mom did not enjoy it at all. No. It bothered well, her very much. That stuff kept happening to him. Well, I'm glad she stuck with it. She had to because I made her watch it with yeah. me. Yeah. Since I have to watch Rachel Maddow every single night, and... I don't mind watching Lawrence O'Donnell, but... No. And I don't mind Rachel Maddow, but I just... She's right. always haranguing us, the watchers. Well, that's because she's smart and knows. Oh, God. So, I gave it a seven. Oh, and like good. I said, I don't... If you enjoy good, really good acting, and the, the way it was directed was good, like, even though the whole premise was kind of soapy, I mean, all sorts of shit was happening, and it's like, oh my God... The acting was very natural, you know, like you're watching people just talking. It's almost right. like a reality show. That's so a good I thought acting. that was very, very good. That's good. Um, That's I good. was very impressed by, especially Mark Ruffalo, but Rosie, she did a great job too. So. That's good. Now, what did you? What well, did you ha- I had been very excited because I had actually taken notes on a true crime documentary series I was going to do, but I left my notes at home. As you know, I'm away, and because Ugh. I'm working on my book, I'm not doing much else. Your but- book? You're a writer? Sorry, I know yes. I make that joke like every time. I know time. you do. It's so it's so funny too. But speaking of me being a writer. I have mentioned, I think, I'm sure, on this podcast, that when I'm writing, I don't like reading fiction because it makes me think too much about my writing when I want to get away from it and stuff. Particularly fiction that has similarities to mine. And it makes your bitterness boil up inside. Yes, and resentment into a giant ball of of hate and disgust in my stomach Mm. that's made me balloon to 70 pounds more than what my weight should be. But... For whatever reason, I'm trying not to examine it too deeply. I've somehow been (laughs) hate reading a series. This is a British series. And I want people to understand, too, I'm rating these books by rating them. I'm not saying, oh, my stuff is so great. I'm so much better, blah, blah, blah. This is totally in the context of these books and me as, as a writer Editor and reader analyzing these books. I'm not saying I'm any better 
I just want to get that out of the way. Well, I think you are. Thanks, Becky. So anyway, the books are by Charles Todd, who I was so annoyed by the first one. I looked him, quote unquote, up, and it's actually a a mother-son team of writers. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I can't imagine, like, I couldn't imagine writing a fiction <laughs> novel with another person. I certainly... With your, with your dad. <laughs> don't, please, don't. So anyway, the, they're the Ian Rutledge series of books, and the premise is he has just returned from World War One. shell-shocked. Ugh. He's a Scotland... I know. Like, well, let me do the review. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's a Scotland Yard detective, and yes, I know the shell shock thing has been done, even in my books, but not by a soldier. But it, one interesting aspect is, and this is not a spoiler because it's explained in great detail, very close to the beginning of every single book, and I think there's like a hundred books in this series, I'm not sure, on the battlefield at the Somme, which was one of the really horrific battles of World War One, which was a really horrific war. His corporal, Hamish MacLeod, a Scottish guy, it did not want to lead the men into battle again. And it wasn't because he was a coward, as the writer beats you over the head with, but it's because he was just tired of people dying and he was tired of leading people to a certain death and he just wasn't going to do it. So the rules of war dictated that Ian, the commander, had to have Hamish shot by a firing squad. Although the guys in the firing squad were not, ah. I know the guys in the firing squad, and I and I'm sorry, I'm I'm like just arrest the guy and tie him up in in the trench or something, you know what the fuck? But um, you know it's this war bullshit. The guys in the firing squad were not into it enough to do it well, so Ian then had to shoot him in the head. He wars hell, and then right after that, a shell came <laughs> and blew everything to hell. And the only thing that saved Ian was Hamish's body landing on oh him and creating God. an air pocket. <laughs> oh, and there's a reason I'm going into great detail on this. So Ian went through the next two years of the war a just basically trying to get himself killed, but it somehow didn't happen, although I think if you tried hard enough in World War One, you could have. And he came back just a total blithering fucking mess and was in a you know, mental hospital or whatever, and finally went back to Scotland Yard. So the books take place, I think I read the fifth or sixth one first, and then realizing it was a series, went and started with the first one. And it's like each month he's back, and he's in a different part of the, so far it's been England and Scotland, but a different part of the UK. But the thing is, Hamish, part of Ian's shell shock is that Hamish is with him. Hamish is this arguing, uh, angry voice in his head. And to tell you the truth, maybe that's one reason I keep reading. So anyway, so that's kind of the premise, that he's, and his commander at Scotland Yard hates him, so he's always sending him to these far-flung places and is hoping that he'll fuck up enough that this guy won't have to deal with him. I think one of the things I like about it is that it's very character-based. But why don't we go through the NNW? And you'll find out why don't we? What I don't like. So the first one is bad reenactments. I guess I could refer to the flashbacks to World War One as reenactments, but I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna not take any points away because there are other things to take points away on. So I'll just say no. Narrative cliches. Yes, yes, there are narrative cliches. I'm taking a point away. 
There's a lot of stereotyping, and we'll get into when we get into the gender stuff later. There's all those things. Smiles don't reach people's eyes. People turn and look out the window, so they have their back to the person. They're, I keep picturing soap operas, you know, where, you know, somebody's behind somebody. I know, talking. that was a The author, scene. the mom and son author duo have a very small bag of tricks and their bag of tricks has several cliches that are used over and over that, as a writer, you're told not to use. And they do it anyway, and yet their books have been New York Times bestsellers, so what the fuck do Aww. I know? But I'm taking away a point. But it's things okay. like, the smile doesn't reach the eyes, which I know is one mm-hmm. of your favorite and one of mine. The women are not attractive and yet somehow attractive. There's a lot of blustering, angry one note type people everybody in it who's overweight is an unpleasant unattractive person well Um, like us yeah a lot like us come to think of it but anyway what's the next one racial gender obtuseness well so far there has been no one who isn't white because it's 1919 in england and he's just not coming across those folks I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. There was, there is a woman, this rich woman who grew up in India during the Great Mutiny, which I had to look up. I'm very ignorant of world history, I guess, and it sounds, uh, I'm going to have to read more about it. And of course, it's all from the British point of view in the book, not the Indian point of view, where they've been subjugated by an empire and we're trying to get out from under it, but I digress. So she has an Indian servant, because they all have servants, because it's England and shit, but um, that's not really a stereotype, but the gender, first of all, Becky, you'll laugh, because I know I've texted you about my dismay. (laughs) I think I've read six books so far, and in five of them, spoiler, the murderer is a woman, Hmm. which... Isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think at least one of my books has a woman who's a murderer based on somebody I worked with and I hated. But the women are either... I mean, he has a lot of strong women and Ian likes strong, intelligent women. But there's also a lot of this women are manipulators of men. Women are duplicitous. Women use their attractiveness to get what they want. And I I feel like in some ways a hundred years ago that had to be true because women weren't going to get what they wanted otherwise. But it's not done in a layered way of understanding the world around these women. It's like, I don't want to call it a Madonna whore situation, but the women are, are, there are strong women, but there are, Many more negatives about women, and they're all those cliche anti-female negatives. And when I read the first one, I was assuming it was written by a guy, because the name is Charles Todd. And I'm like, this guy is a fucking misogynist. And I looked it up, and it was a mother-son team, and that didn't change my mind. I don't know who does what writing or did what writing. But anyway, so what's the next thing? Lack of good visuals. I won't take any points away, because it's a work of fiction with no art, so there are no visuals. Okay, Missing Pieces is the next one. Yes, I'm going to take away half a point. Because when I'm reading fiction, I read it closely, and there are plot... Every single book has had plot issues where 
I know something got left out and the dots don't connect. And I know that can happen. I know how hard it is to put a plot together. But it happens enough that I'm taking away half a point. Ooh. Inaccuracy, anachronisms. I am not going to take away a point. And this is one of the more positive things. Obviously, I was not... In Great Britain a hundred years ago, I only know what I've read in the many books. I'm a British mystery novel fan, so I probably know more than the average American about Britain. And one of my all-time favorite series, the one that shaped me as a mystery reader and writer, was Dorothy Sayers, who coincidentally had a shell-shocked protagonist, but she was writing in her time, Lord Peter Whimsey. And I know it's difficult to write about a certain time and get everything right, but nothing in six books now has stuck out to me as like, no, 1919, that wouldn't be happening. And that goes from what people are wearing to how they're speaking to other things. They do a very good job with that part of it. Okay. Storytelling. Taking away a point taking away a point and this is a nuanced takeaway because the stories obviously are compelling enough to keep me reading but there are writing issues that again you shouldn't be able to get away with that i certainly couldn't get away with like front-loading information i write a series and i know that you have to repeat things for people who haven't read the other books. You have to try to weave things in from the other books without giving away too much. But they front load, like the information about Hamish McLeod and what happened in World War One. it could be filtered better through the book. They just, it, you know, so that there's a way too much of he walks into a room and you get this total complete description of everything in the room. And it's like, He's walking into a room to confront somebody. Are we really going to know what century the draperies are and what all the art on the walls is and, you know, that kind of stuff? He he drives into a town in Scotland and there's a monolith from the 15th or 16th century because the town was burned down three times by the Reavers, which I want to find out more about. But you don't know driving into a town and seeing a monument that it's a monument to the fact that the town was burned down three times because of the Reavers when it's just this fucking monolith. And so that's one of that too much exposition, often called overwriting. People are way too intuitive, like some little servant girl who answers the door and he asks her a question, gives this flowery soliloquy about how somebody's dress was like flowing water when he asks what somebody's dress looked like and bullshit. I know people's eyes are expressive, but everybody's reading way too much shit in people's eyes. You know, and that kind of goes to the cliches, but it's also part of the bad storytelling because as a writer, you you want to let readers know what people are thinking and what people's impressions are. But there are more skilled ways to do it than everybody just reading yeah, stuff in people's show, eyes. Not tell, right? Right, right. But in in a way, they are trying to show by people reading. But I can't look at somebody and read in their eyes whether they're feeling jealousy, hatred, pity. People are seeing way too much into people's souls. People are knowing way too much about somebody just by looking at them. There's also one of my huge peeves of point of view changes. It gets a little better as the series goes on. 
But I know this may sound to people who just want to read and don't give a shit about this kind of thing, but it does affect what you're reading. Even though the books are in the third person, you don't have Ian's point of view and then the next sentence, the person he's talking to point of view. Because that kind of takes you out of the book. Because you're Ian, you're thinking like Ian, you're feeling like Ian, you're experiencing what he is, and all of a sudden, boom, you're getting the impression of what this guy thinks of Ian. You know, the rule is you change a scene if you're going to change the point of view. That you don't have a point of view change in the middle of a scene or a paragraph or a sentence. It just throws things off course. And again, I know that may sound like too much inside baseball for people who just want to read. But when you're reading a book, there are extremely successful best-selling authors who do that and... Nobody, it's like the Emperor's New Clothes, nobody calls them on it. Um, I won't name any names. But with all the other flaws the writing has in these books... Okay, freshness. It is fresh. Yes, we've done Shell-Shocked World War One. I'm sure Lord Peter, I think Lord Peter Whimsey may have been the first one. But there have been others because, let's face it, almost anybody who came back alive from World War One was probably shell-shocked. And, you know, obviously it's the haunted hero thing and yet I find maybe it's been a long time since I've read an old-timey British mystery but I find the settings refreshing the authors do know the English countryside very well and I find myself looking up things on the map (laughs) as I'm reading you feel the countryside you feel where you are they're not all just in london you know he does spend time in london the hamish it sounds like it could be annoying to have the ghost it's not really a ghost it's a voice in his head of hamish mcleod and they were close before he died and before he had him shot by the firing squad they spent all night talking So there's a lot of material in his head from Hamish, and I'm not giving away anything because you will, if you read these books, read about that fairly early and in great detail in any one of the books. I find it fresh because in a lot of ways, it's a devil's advocate. It's a way to have Dr. Watson or the sergeant or, you know, the, although he's an apt foe, he brings up things that... Rutledge should be thinking of. He points out things. Part of it is, yeah, you know it's in his head and it's really part of him, but his guilt over what he had done. I mean, he's not happy with the fact he shot Hamish. Part of him knows it wasn't that he had to do it and yet it somehow wasn't the right decision. And he's grappling with that, but it's a good way to get that counterpoint in there and to... And it's fresh because, you know, I'm sure there are books that do the same thing. The only thing that could come to my mind was the TV show The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, although the ghost was actually a ghost. And I'm not big on paranormal, but this isn't paranormal, it's psychological. And for that, I will say, there's obviously a reason I'm reading them, so... Okay. How about repetition? Yes, I'm taking away a point. Because, first of all, the repetition of cliches, the not attractive yet somehow attractive, the smiles not reaching the eyes, the Ian's always saying things more brusquely than he means to. There is also, I feel like when you write a series, your assumption is 
most people are going to read more than one book in the series. And you have to write the books so they can stand alone. But you also have to write them so your regular readers aren't saying, ah, here we go with three pages of what happened with Hamish and Ian and, and the psalm kind of thing. He repeats book to book. They repeat book to book way too much information. Like, you need to try to say it differently from book to book, have different impressions. And it's not like word for word. It's not like the author has cut and pasted the information. And you do, especially in the earlier books, learn more about what happened in each book with Hamish. But yet, the repetition of descriptions of people who are in every book, the repetition of how Ian feels about things, just even little things like he's got a fucking car. It's 1919. A lot of people don't have him and he has to crank the car to start it. And so every time he gets in the fucking car, it has him cranking the car. And you don't need to do that. After he does it once or twice, the reader can assume he cranked the car unless it's going to be part of the plot. Like he goes to crank it and he breaks his arm or the crank falls off. So there's a lot of stuff like that. So I'm taking away a point for repetition. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say about series. There have been some series I've read that even maybe they haven't cut and pasted it, but it's so, it seems like it, it feels like it was cut and pasted yes. because it's so similar. And you're like, yeah, I know yes. that so-and-so met so-and-so and then they got married and they live in this cottage or whatever. It's like, right. yeah, we know that. Right. But whatever. I understand. And, and, and I will, and I said, you know, I know I said at the beginning, this isn't like, oh, I'm such a great writer and these people aren't. Obviously, these people are wildly more successful and probably wealthy, I would hope, than I am. But that said, is I try to find ways in my series to get the same type of information across but in a different way. And you don't need a block of exp mm -hmm. exposition explaining. You very rarely need a block of exposition explaining something. Yeah. You know, unless you have some pedantic person in the book who is going to go on about shit. The last one, beating the drum. Yes. Yes. He beats the drum. They beat the drum. And um, so you're taking off a point? Yes, I am. Yes, oh, I am. Okay. I'm taking off a point. The drum beating is hand-in-hand hand with the repetition and the cliches. I feel like what Ian's mental state is, is a very powerful thing. But we're constantly over-reminded of what anguish he's in, how tired he is, how shell-shocked he is, how he isn't going to go back to the hospital, how we get what he's going through, the overwriting about his mental state. I mean, he's got a fucking Scottish guy haranguing him constantly who doesn't exist, who's dead. So yeah, we get... So the state of Ooh. Ian's mind and psyche, the drum beating on it is a little much, and it would be... It, and it's all, like I said, tied in with the storytelling and the cliches and the repetition. So what is that? Like a six and a half? Am I, oh, I was supposed to keep track? That was a rhetorical question. Let's see. Uh, I took away a point for... Let's say it's six and a half, you know? Okay. I, I think that's what it about was. You know, and it's funny, given... I can not explain 
why I can't stop reading these books. I'll finish one and I'll go on iBooks and buy the next one. Fortunately, they are not expensive books. Part of it, I think, is escapism. I've been over corona over MSNBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me um, too. My job involves a lot of that stuff. I'm constantly, I'm trying to write my own book, and I need something. And when I watch true crime, I'm always thinking of my own book. You know, it's like, I think I just needed something completely different from anything else going on. That's and- why, what about This Is Us? I I would (laughs) Okay, sorry. Watching This Is Us would be like staring at a white wall. Okay, okay. I was just joking. Nothing is gonna happen there that I haven't seen before, only it's gonna be an annoying white wall because uh, everybody who's there is gonna annoy me. I know that's not a good metaphor. (laughs) But what I'm saying about this is I'm interested enough in the character I'm interested enough in his progression as he goes on. I'm interested enough in the mysteries. I mean, for all the negative things I said, if they were horrible, I mean, there are books where I've read one and I'm like, that is the last book in that fucking series I'm ever going to read because I just can't stand this shit. So (laughs) I do recommend them. I think a lot of people, I know that there are people even in our family who think I'm overly critical and would be screaming at me right now. I'm not a, I'm not a fucking English major. Somebody who may like Dan Brown books. I'm just saying. (laughs) If somebody's looking for something different and they like British mysteries, I would recommend the Ian Rutledge, Charles Todd series. I see Charles Todd also has another series. There are annoying things. If, Things like that annoy you, I guess. Is <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I might try them. But in any case, speaking of, I am so fucking hot and want to turn the fan Ooh. on. So we should probably. Well, I'm tired too. But, Let's wrap it up. Yeah, so we want to thank we'll again um, our new Patreon supporters and also our old ones who have um, increased their amount and stuff. We, we feel. Um, we don't feel comfortable asking for money, but we also, like, for instance, you know, we upgraded to Clean Feed Pro, so hopefully our sound will be a little better. Yeah. Although I'm hoping they finally get, since you have to use an iPhone, they finally get it so iPhone isn't, you know, it's still a little shaky with the iPhone. Yeah. But um, but the other thing is, I'm not just saying this, I am actually working oh yeah. on a new um, logo. Lo- logo, and I'm kind of reworking our patreon little animal character things so we should have some new swag Sweat. and stuff we'll get it to our patrons right we'll yeah so the, like yeah the people who've already gotten stuff when we get the new logo we'll we'll send you some stuff yeah, we'll send you the, stuff. the people who have recently come on board once i get home from my writing vacation your stuff will be in the mail with our current logo of our smiling faces that Becky, who's an artist by the way, yes. did. But then we'll also Although send I you never a... really liked them that much. But they're yeah, okay. Well, I like them in that they're us, so saying we don't like us would be Well, I don't think they look enough like, like us, Freud. but whatever. Yeah, they don't really... But they it was cute. I mean, but it's, yes. been, it's been almost four years and it's time for something I know. And yes, so, but I'm I, what excited. I'm saying is we'll we'll get that out there. We'll we'll launch yes. it to people and... I'm excited about it. And and as I said, we're, we're not comfortable asking for money or for 
five-star reviews or for anything I'm else. I'm okay asking for five-star reviews. Because that's how we were raised. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, I. well, the reason I'm okay asking, because I figure if you listen to us, you either like enjoy listening to us or you can't stand. But what I'm saying is do what you feel is the right Which, thing. To and, leave us a five-star review. Right. I'm sorry. Right. I'm just saying... Do what's in your heart. I think your problem is you're you don't want to ask for what you deserve, and you deserve the best. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, we're slate. but I do, I do. Why do you think that's so funny? I don't know. It just I so do. Corny. <laughs> I do want. To th- really thank all of our patrons because I really we really do appreciate we it, do, and I know we, we have, especially how unreliable we we've been. But it makes me feel guilty. But we really we're we trying do, to be more, re- and right. we're actually putting together a strategy to get Groovy to back. Oh, I really want to, yeah. And track, because I know some of our patrons, I think, is more of a Groovy Tube fan than a Crime and Stuff fan. Uh, so I feel bad. And I do want to, especially, yeah, I want to. And also, we need to finish. We, Cousin Oliver. We're almost done. The Brady's were. We haven't gotten to Cousin Oliver yet, and uh, we're almost done. So I know, and then we have the Mod Squad if we ever get to it. Yeah. But anyway, I guess we should go. Okay. Okay. But again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Crimeandstuffonline.com. Everything you need to know. On Facebook. Feel free to say hi and tweet at us. Yeah. Anything. Yeah, we're, we're responsive. Around. Becky's okay. our social media director, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I'm really responsive. You are, that, because but, you I got to do all this other shit. So that's your job. Well, you have one job. I am. Okay. And then Thanks, you have everybody. to submit your link. Okay. And make the logo. Right. That, too. That, too. Okay. okay. Thanks, Thank for, <laughs> thanks for <Good> listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Is that Dan? Sorry. Is your door open? It's dad. Yes, and there. Daisy is purring. Yes, I can hear Daisy purring. But why is your door open? Because the- <laughs> you can see. Because the cats open the door and. Oh, she's sure, blaming on the cats. They're both here with me. Oh, dad and mom. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He's just, he's like lurching, <laughs> lurching up the stairs. Geezing, geezing. If you hear him fall. I'll never forget that time when I was living. I'll never forget that time I was living with them and he fell down that back staircase. Oh he was God. carrying his laptop and, you know, that bedroom that I was in was right next to the staircase. Yeah. So I heard him fall and I'm like, oh my God, Dad. And I went running out and Mom's like watching Rachel Maddow or whatever with the TV up. And I'm like, Mom, Dad fell down the stairs. And Mom's like, oh, I'm sure he's fine. <laughs> he was, like he was okay. 